Unusual Suspects with Owen Brennan, a Go Loud original. We're on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in an area known as Alphabet City. This is a neighbourhood that was once a no-go zone back in the 70s and 80s. Even the cops wouldn't come in here if they could avoid it. Brutal poverty was a fact of life here and the crime that grew from it sealed this corner of the city off from the outside world. And we're here now because this is the home to one of the key characters in the story of the Brinks heist. And he's here at St Bridget's Church offering Mass. Let us pray. Father, all-powerful and ever-living God, we do well always and everywhere to give you thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is Father Patrick Maloney, and his path to this point where we meet him crosses through the dark and dangerous days of gang wars in this corner of New York in the 60s and 70s, to courtrooms on both sides of the Atlantic, accusations of terrorism and theft, war with drug dealers, political protest and agitation, adoration by hundreds, probably thousands if we're being realistic about it, and every manner of adventure that you could imagine. And he's very happy to take us on a tour and tell a few stories. A place called Alphabet City where nobody would dare to venture in. Cops wouldn't even come in double squad cars. Burnt out buildings, abandoned, the school was empty. Squatters came uh, and began to move into the empty buildings, drug dealing, gangs. That big building when it was empty, no cop would go in there on his own. And it was really a no man's land. But if you didn't know your territory, you just didn't come in. So it gave me a unique position. I lived in the midst of it. I knew everybody. I could infiltrate any possible imaginable place. That corner of 7th Street was one group. The corner of 9th and uh, B was controlled by the assassin lords. The farther over were the untouchables because they were 11th Street between B and A. Then you had the Lancys, the Dutchmen, the Eastmen, and the different ones carving out a little territory for them. They were very decent, courteous guys. If you wanted to walk through their territory instead of going all the way up the block, you'd pay a nickel. But you never dared come by with your colors. If you did, you'd get more than the color you were going out with. <laughs> It was great. It was a wonderful adventure. Only, only a mad Irishman could do it, you know. But it was great. It was wonderful. Father Pat has helped and housed thousands of people at his home on East 9th Street. He's built into the fabric of the place. He's a constant for generations of families that have grown up here. He knows me since I was in my mom's belly. He knows my mom, my dad, my brothers, my sisters, my grandmother, everybody. Lifelong resident up, of the Lower East Side. He raised three. me. He raised all of us. Now, what do we call you? What do we call you? Kusa. 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 Kusa was one of a large family of the Braceros. And her mother was Anna, her father was William. And all the boys, the teenagers, were all teeny poppers of my house since the 60s. He knew me before I was born. Love you. Bless you. Bye. 
The hub of all he does is Bonita's house. It's a five-storey building he bought with donations in the 1960s. Now we're in front of 604 East 9th Street, 606 and 8. When I got this building of 606 and 61, inundated with volunteers of every nationality and every talent imaginable. So we had a whole building, which we took care of ourselves. And then I lived here with the street kids from the gang on the, in our own house. Which is this yeah, one? Our build, yeah, where we're going into right now. He begged and borrowed enough to keep the operation running and he made Bonita's house a home for him and plenty of others who needed help. Pat was born in Limerick. His home was a single-bed tenement apartment in Limerick's corporation houses. From an early age, he wanted to become a priest, but not a priest like the ones that he knew in Ireland. They were all upper crust. Big farmers, bankers, lawyers, that type of stuff. You rarely got a boy from the corporation houses. I think I became a priest because of an Irish priest. And he was a fat, pompous little man. So we, had, we were a mixed family. We had Protestant cousins. And my mother used to say to us, go down to, on Saturday, they'd come to visit us, the girls. Go down now and write out a candle to the Blessed Mother and put your penny in and make sure that, um, give Marion and Margaret some of the pennies. And I remember one day I went down and Margaret's looking up at this lovely marble statue. And she says, well, Pat, what are we doing? Well, so we're going to light a candle to the Blessed Mother. She said, who? It's the Blessed Mother, Mary. And what are you going to do with the money? We put it in the boxes. So what would she be doing with the money? So why don't we give her two opinions and we keep the rest for ourselves and buy sweets? Priest comes up and, why are you talking in church? And I never forget. I looked at him, I glared at him. And I said, what do we do in church, Father? Did you talk to God? So that's what I was doing. And then my brother said, you son of a bitch. And I came walking. <laughs> I was seven. They had an attitude. I felt myself... I wanted to be different. They were too aloof from the people. There was no relationship between us. Not in my day. We were afraid of the priest. In the 1950s, Maloney left Ireland and headed to New York. I arrived in New York, April 17th, 1955. It happened to be the Sunday after Easter. On a big boat that arrived in the docks, and I hadn't a clue where I was. I arrived in the concrete jungle that became very difficult to adjust to. It was a totally indescribable experience. You're in the midst of the world. But I came here in my early 20s for a very, very sheltered Irish life. I was never like a part of the full world. When I came here, extremely naive, green, Greener than the most green, green horn that ever came, frankly. He was shocked by the poverty he found in America. He started working with charities and it wasn't long before he had founded his own youth service. Soon after that, they would have a permanent home here in Alphabet City. The focus was on helping troubled kids and undocumented immigrants. Several years later, he studied to join the priesthood and was ordained in the Greek Melkite Church, a Catholic religion but one separate to the Roman Catholic Church he grew up with in Ireland. Even when he joined the church, funding his work and helping so many people was never easy. And materially speaking, Father Pat lived a very basic life. 
entering the sanctum now. This room here, there's two low file cabinets, and there was a board on top of that. That was my bed. Now, up on the wall is Martin Luther King's expression, when one of us is in prison, none of us is free, it was over my bed. Over here was the proclamation. And then up here, up in the top, there were two icons, which are now appear over the door. And up there on top, there was a couple of slogans from the rap. It was, one was, says, says, it was had, it showed you a Fenian soldier, big poster up there and said, you can kill the revolutionary, but not the revolution. This was where I lived for most of my life, this part. Who needs more? They called it a cell, like, you know, so. <laughs> but anyway. Gangs were a scourge on the area in the early days, and he used the house to come up with ways to diffuse tension between warring factions. He made the house a beacon of calm in the storm. So back in the gang days, we had lights out here, tables out here. So we had this part of the house and that there. They danced inside, they danced outside. The songs of the 60s, you know, Lonely Boy or The Great Pretender, all those great old songs. And the way we did them was every Friday night there'd be a dance during the gang days. So each group would control the, get, the dance for one weekend. Come in, they'd get a sandwich, they'd get a something to drink or a piece of pie or something and for the couple of pennies went in so each group kept their own money of what they made at the dance until the time came that they could open their own little storefront and that's how we managed to uh, socialize a lot of the gangs the untouchables would share with the young knights the young knights would share with the assassin lords the lords would go with the, with the young lords and so forth so it began mutual cooperation Instead of fighting among each other, we learned how to work together and try to fight a common enemy of poverty, oppression, injustice. Mm. And I always found that, Mother, how tough or rough or tumble any kid was, challenge his ability, bring out the best in him, and you find he's not looking for trouble. He's looking for a life and looking for a future. Dances for gangs are just the tip of the iceberg, really. He has packed a lot into his years. He has stories you would never expect of a priest. And some of it might be hard to believe, except he has the photos. Bonita's house feels like a lived-in museum. The walls are lined with pictures and the table is filled with scrapbooks and photo albums. And they document a life of a thousand adventures. Well, actually, it all started here with that, that album over there, with the articles that began... See, every, and this group here, there's a whole story about them. They built a raft from scrap and they crossed the Atlantic on their way to Norway and ended up in Cork. They crossed the Atlantic? That's right. I'll keep you going stories forever. She clicked her fingers and as true as I am looking at you, a circle of fire came up on the floor. Now, it's the oldest trick in the book when you learn science. You put mercury or you put a little alcohol around. So anyway, she wants me to step into the circle of, of fire. This is all part of the amazing kaleidoscopic things that happened, you know? Mm. He was a money, a money man for a famous organization. We leave it at that. <laughs> this guy here, I always suspected he was a plant either from the branch or the FBI. You know, so that's another story entirely. 
with young people who came from different parts of the world, who belong to particular different organizations, which are not fully approved by their governments. And we had to find places of refuge for them to live anonymously and quietly. I went after the drug dealers with a vengeance. I had my own, my own battalion and we made sure we got enough information to get them out of the streets. That's a whole other story there. Okay. People going into ecstasies and waving their hands and everything but levitating. I was so fascinating in the world. I said, my God, what an interesting place. I was still there at four o'clock in the morning. I could keep you going forever with some of the stuff. As Pat flicks through the albums, he hits on the first story that begins to tie all of this back to the brinks. Pat was arrested in Ireland in 1982 alongside his brother when Gardy intercepted a shipment of machine guns hidden in a crate of roller skates. The guns were intended for the IRA and delivered to Pat's brother. Pat was at the house at the same time. He was there for their father's birthday. However, he was also arrested and charged with smuggling the weapons. Pat's brother was convicted, but Pat was found not guilty. He did, however, spend a few weeks locked up in a maximum security prison in Ireland while awaiting trial. They must choose them for their stupidity. They should get an Oscar for it. And they all focused all the attention on me, helped me on $10,000 bail. Of course, I got out. And then I went back to, after, after weeks there, I rubbed their nose in it when they had to, the, the, the judge had to, uh, the chief prosecutor, Farrell, never get him, stepped forward. And a week before this is telling them, this priest was involved in, with the mafia, with Arafat, with the heads of terrorist groups. And the people are going to Ireland are going to prove the following. So I came back before Judge Hamilton and the other three, uh, whatever they call them, their lordships. And I refused to send a lordship. I said, there's only one lord in heaven. I bow to. I'm not bowing to any bloody lordship over here with your bloody British wigs. You know, I told him bluntly. So then Hamilton was annoyed at me. Father Maloney, will you please sit down? I said, no, I will not sit down. And then he says to me, Father Maloney, you will look up to this court. And I'm all the way up in the dock and he's down there. Have you seen it, right? And I said, well, you're wrong. That's about a moral and physical impossibility. <laughs> but of course, they're, they're all writing it down. It's me. You know, I knew how to go them. That, by the way, was what prompted me into the headlines over here. I mean, I'll show you the article, Double Barrel Priest, uh, Father Pat Priest, Paller Gun Run. It became viral over here. And of course, all that, Later on, when the other thing happened in 93, which I'll talk to you about later, uh, they saw a continued profile. So the FBI's attitude was, he escaped us back then, we'll get him this time. Remember Norraid, the Irish-American group who, back in Rochester, counted Tom O'Connor as one of their members? They were the group long believed to have some members who were more than willing to offer whatever aid they could to the provisional IRA. Well, Pat Maloney used to speak at their dinner dances, sometimes in Rochester. I went to Albany, I went to Rochester, different places, uh, to dinner dances sponsored by Norate. It was after the Irish episode, and it was pretty popular and kind of considered, you know, a good booking and that. So I don't know why, but whatever. And all of this, the IRA trial, the speaking at Norate dances, it all fed perfectly into the FBI suspicions about potential IRA links to the Brinks heist. And it offered clues that the priest might be a piece in the jigsaw. Here's FBI Special Agent Paul Hawkins. And we're like, oh, okay, now it makes sense. So we're like, okay, now now I see where we're going with this because it's the IRA connection. And that Irish-American community and the links to Norad, 
is also how Father Pat and Sam Miller meet each other. I met Sam. He'd come down here every so often. So we became quite good friends. He was always a rather odd person, very quiet, very not talkative like I would be. He'd, yes, no. If you'd say to him, uh, where are you from? Are you from the north? Yep. Where are you from? Are you uh, Belfast? Yep, yeah, that'll do. Very silent. But then I had a great admiration for him. He was one of the last of the blanket men. And I'd heard before, he was one of those who did not, didn't feel the blanket or things should stop until they got more concessions. And now we come to a pretty key point in our journey to the tale of the Brinks heist. You might not be shocked to learn this, but Sam had the money. He was one of the thieves the night of the heist. And in the summer of 1993, Sam had the money in New York City. We'll come back later on to how exactly he did it. But for now, the important thing to know is Sam was in New York City with a van full of cash. Got back to New York, just parked a van there for anybody to steal. Fucking left it, didn't give a shit. In the garage, in this big public garage, sat there for days. I didn't give a fuck, I was just glad it was over. And I realised it then, I says, it wasn't about the money. It was never about the money, you know. At the start, I thought it was, you know, get me an easy way of getting into comic books and all this here. Nah, it wasn't that. And I hated it. started hating the money, you know. started testing the gun out. Yeah, it was all the news started dropping down. So on the New York Times and New York and the news about this big robbery and all, you know, all this here. Of course, then it only lasts for a few minutes and then something else comes on, you know what I mean? But uh, didn't want it now. Want the van to disappear. See if it had been stolen. I wouldn't give a shit. That's what I was feeling like. Just fucking glad, you know, so exhausted mentally and all, you know what I mean? And when you find yourself with a van full of cash, and especially when that cash is not your own, you need somewhere to put it. But who would you turn to? So now I have this bastard thing I can't get rid of, all this money. So I'm trying to think, who can I trust that can get rid of this? Hold it for me, put it somewhere, put it to use, do whatever they have to do, you know? And then this name came into my head of this priest. Nah, I've no respect for any priest. But this priest, a mate of mine had introduced me to him, and when I met him, so I'd taken it back. He's living a life of poverty down the village, down New York. And he slept in a so like homemade bed, like a cardboard, ba- like a wooden backseat made. That's where he slept on. I think, hmm, is this guy a con man, or is he a fucking, does he really live the life of God, the Lord, like, you know? It's quite well known. Looking after the poor, homeless, people who are sick, you know? So after a while, I used to donate stuff to them, old furniture and all. So I wouldn't say I became friends, but came came to know each other. Had a bit of respect. Yeah, I'd been inside, so I was good enough for him. He came from a Republican background, you know, so I was good enough for him. And that's how I got to know Father Pat Maloney, the one and only. Then he baptized my kids, one of my kids, and things like that there. So we got to know him as, yeah. Well, I always had the respect for him because he always did a lot of work for uh, people back home, you know. And he had a good reputation among the poor. And when he talked about it, he actually did it. You know, you can see a life he was living, like a life of poverty, really. Like, he lives in this big, big old Victorian sort of house. It's got hundreds of rooms and all, like, you know, but it's helter-skelter. There's always something going on in the place, like, you know, I mean, it's a bad house, like, you know. But that's up as far apart. So I thought, 100%, this is the guy. I'll go to him first, you know, and let's go. I'll give me an idea because I said soup kitchens, the poor, you know, not a problem. Let's let's do it. Let's build yourself a big, big soup kitchen. So I just says, look, Pat, 
got some money here, we'd like you to fucking look after for it. So he's, he knows I'm an illegal alien. So at the time, he's probably thinking, I, I don't know, probably thinking, oh, works in this casino, he's getting his money, he needs to put it in a bank because it's hard to get a bank account when you're a legal alien, you know what I mean? Like, so maybe he's talking, hmm, 10,000, maybe, maybe 20,000. Yeah, I can do that, do that, you know? I said, well, because a wee bit more than 20,000. don't worry about it, you know? One have we look. It's actually parked outside your house. So what, what do you mean parked outside the house? He said, oh, so well, you better come out and have a look. So he says, oh, dear God, you know, like, we about to get somewhere now to put this now. So whatever it was, he had a place, it was like a wee garage, a wee private place. I was at Putin. I'm so glad. Doors locked. Happy days. Sam and Father Pat share this story. They are both forever part of the Brinks story and the Brinks is part of their stories. They'll never get away from it and all that it brings with it. But they don't agree on what that story is. Father Pat and Sam Miller tell two very different tales and it starts right from this first moment. And who knew what and when they knew it? I never told him initially what it was. So about two days later he says, hmm, he's a strange fellow, that Tom O'Connor, isn't he? That cop up in Rochester. So I knew then, because the papers are carrying it all, but the whole thing, you know what I mean? Blah, blah, and I suspected that the area was all a load of shit. Like, you know, you saw all that shit to come up with, you know? But uh, yeah, he knew it. I said, look, Pat, it's up to yourself. He said, no, 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 don't worry about it. We'll get it. We'll get it up with, you know? And that was the fucking start of the fucking problems, you know? Total madness started. It's like a Jerry Lewis film. That's how Sam tells it. Pat says he had no idea where the cash was from. I want to tell you categorically. He's always said he thought it was from one of Sam's casinos. I had absolutely nothing to do before or after the fact of the Brinks robbery. In fact, Pat says the meeting with the van never took place. And this is just the start of the difference in opinion. Did Pat know it was money from the Brinks? Oh, yeah. Did you think that money fell from heaven, from God, and fell into your lap? I knew full well that not only did Sam work as a doorman uptown, he also worked as a croupier or a money man for gambling syndicates. I knew he was a croupier. I knew he held a lot of money because we ran a kind of informal, uh, unofficial, totally legal kind of credit union. So people who give us money, we'd hold it for them, pass it on. And occasionally, like, invest, I can show you a check there. It was written out in 1992 for $40,000 to somebody from the Midlands who went back home, couldn't take all the money with them, or they'd lose their benefits over there. And that money went through accounts. So we were doing that for years. Up to now, I, this is in July or August. I still had heard nothing about the Brinks. I never knew it existed. Away up at the end of New York State in Rochester. It probably was hardly mentioned in the uh, papers here. That, that's not newsworthy down here. It's not local. But I had never heard of the Brinks robbery. Why, why, why would I? I'm down here. This alleged meeting between Pat and Sam with the money in the van is in the summer in 93. Roughly late June or early July. The dates aren't exact, particularly as Pat says that the meeting didn't happen. And he says he didn't see any of the money until later. Meanwhile, Sam was growing a little more relaxed and confident as time wound on. But he wasn't under the impression the FBI had forgotten about the heist. Remember the van tyres? On the night of the robbery, the thieves had left tyre tracks in the dirt of the depository floor. 
And the FBI knew if they could find those same tyres, they would be a lot further down the road of putting together their case. And in the early days of the surveillance, just as the FBI first set eyes on him, Sam got a phone call. I got a call from a well-known source in the, uh, let's, let's just say law enforcement, you know, from the old days. And he goes, it was a two-second call. Get rid of the tires. Put the phone down. And I almost fucking crapped myself. It was the scariest phone call I ever got. It was the shortest phone call. It was the scariest phone call, you know. But Sam didn't exactly take great care in discarding this potentially damning evidence. Put the phone down, went and got the van. Because I was still using the van. Because I didn't want to make any different changes in my lifestyle at that time, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. So went and got the van, went round this uh, great guy who did the uh, garage. I said, look, I need four new tires. She looked at the tires and said, Sam, they're, they're practically new. I says, I need four new tires. I went, okay. You know, I didn't ask any questions. I'll give him a nice bit of money, you know what I mean? So put the fucking four tires, that's madness when you think about it, like, you know what I mean? Put the four tires, the old tires, in the back of a van. And I'm thinking, where the fuck do I get rid of these things? And of course, right across the road from the garage is a McDonald's. And me being the lazy bastard that I am, thinking, fuck, I'll put it in their, their pit. I've got one of them things you put all the garbage, you know? So I opened it, lifted the fucking four tires, threw them in, Close the thing and got him a van and says, ah, happy ever after. He decided to throw all the tires away that he had on his van. So we knew we had a leak in the police department, which was unfortunate. I think the real coup de gras was grabbing the, the tire after he threw it in a vacant lot. Um, what a horrible mistake that was. Um, he should have just, you know, threw it up in the attic or down in the basement or something. Why would you just throw it away in, in public? Uh, but we actually recovered the tyre. But right then, life for Sam was pretty good. He had too much cash to count, and about six months after the heist, he seemed, so far anyway, to be in the clear. But of course, what Sam didn't realise was that the FBI was once again watching. As we heard earlier, the surveillance of Sam had stopped after the FBI focused all of its efforts on investigating the 1993 World Trade Center bombing in February of that year. So the Brinks investigation had effectively gone quiet for roughly four months, until it was resurrected. On the last day of June, they resumed the surveillance operation in New York City. I think now we just need to take a moment to remind ourselves where exactly we are in the overall timeline of the Brinks investigation. So if you remember back to the previous episode, soon after this point, when the FBI restart their surveillance, they spotted Sam at the comic book store. And it was also just shortly after this point that they first saw him meeting with Father Pat. And those two moments were just the start of the second phase of the investigation. Here's Gary Craig again. He's a reporter from Rochester, and he's the author of the definitive study of this story, a book called Seven Million. Surveillance was intense. I mean, it was, you know... Dozens and dozens and dozens of FBI and New York City police. And I think partly because of the belief of the IRA connection and partly because of the size of the robbery. Once they believed, just based on watching Sam initially, that they had the right guy, the the surveillance became around the clock. You can't even imagine how many thousands of hours are spent on it. A specialist surveillance task force was formed between the FBI and the New York Police Department and they would spend their days trying to gather the evidence to solve the Brinks case. Here's FBI Special Agent Paul Hawkins. 
these guys were the best. I mean, um, this is all these guys. I, I've had the pleasure of working with SOG teams before, and all they do all day long, they go to special training. Uh, they they do it all day long, every day. That's all they do is watch people, follow people. Sometimes they get what I call brick agents like me to help out. And I, I will roll up on a static uh, surveillance and try to find these guys. And I'm like, where the hell are you guys? I can't even find them. I don't know what they're driving, so I don't know what cars to look for. I know they're there. I'm on the radio with them. I'm talking to them on the radio. I'm like, you're where? And I'm looking and I'm talking to them on the radio and I'm looking and I'm like, and I was thinking, well, geez, that's really good. If I can't find them, then the bad guys can't find them. So these guys were really, really good. I mean, they are literally invisible. Um, and he didn't do a lot that we didn't know about. Um, and, and I think just the evidence mounted up because of uh, the wonderful job that these guys did. I mean, as soon as he would leave a post office, they would send an agent in and say, okay, now, the good-looking gentleman with the black straight hair that just came in with a big stack of money <laughs> and bought some. And then what we would do is we would trace all those postal money orders, figure out where the money went to, what he, and he was buying uh, silver and gold age comic books with the proceeds. The surveillance team didn't stop at just watching Sam and Father Pat. Sam's wife took a flight from New York City to Rochester and the FBI followed closely. And we actually had a female agent go undercover and sit next to her on the plane. <laughs> Which is pretty damn cool. I mean, uh, to actually orchestrate that. Later in the investigation, another trip would yield more information for police. Sam Miller's wife paid for a holiday to Hawaii with their kids and she paid for it with cash. The FBI recovered the money used to pay for that trip but none of it matched the Brink serial numbers. That didn't mean it wasn't Brink's money. They only kept records of a certain portion of the bills stolen, but it meant it wasn't evidence of a link. And this was the thing. After almost two months in total watching Sam, the FBI were still no closer. There was no evidence. There was no cash. They needed to find the money. And they didn't know it yet, but the money was about to move. And with that, the FBI were about to get their opportunity. Pat says, I mean, look, we're going to have to move this eventually. Start dicing it, giving it out, distributing it, whatever he's going to do with it. But I had no idea what was going to be done with that. I had no idea what was there. I was sick looking at him. I was getting migraine, smelling it, didn't like it. I didn't give a shit, you know. He said, I've got this apartment, Lower Manhattan. We'll put it there. I said, fuck, brilliant. For some unknown reason, Mr. Miller decided to put a bunch of cash in some gym bags. And our guys saw that. And the gym bags went into the truck and they went to Manhattan. And they followed him to Manhattan. And he stopped at Peter Cooper Village, which is probably one of the biggest apartment complexes in New York City, in the middle of Manhattan. And um, he took the bags into an apartment. Um, it was the middle of the day, which was very odd. Walked in from the fucking van into the apartment, just went parked it in the street, lifted the big, because I had them in these big, long, don't know what they call them, duffel bags or something, they were big, big, long, sassy things, you know, packed them up, brought them in, set them there. 
it turned out that Sam made the worst move of his life. Our people in New York said, this guy is so stupid, you can see the stacks of money bulging through the nylon in the gym bag. And I'm like, really? Okay. Uh, so They were watching everything. So I went on, I put the money in, blah, blah, blah. That was it. Hunky days, every day, every, everything's growing, you know? I can retire for the rest of my life. Far Pat can retire, he can build all the soup kitchens and all that sort of stuff, you know? And that was it. Until the fucking shit hit the fan, you know? Next on Unusual Suspects. I came in one particular day to the apartment and I see Sam up to his ears in money. The way you know something's bad, it's going to happen, but they don't act on it. And she put her ear to the door and she heard the sound. She goes, I, I would swear on a stack of Bibles that was a money counter. Well, the way you know was a woman outside, listen. It was as if there was the invasion of Normandy. There were cops in the corner. There were trucks. There were wagons. There was snipers. 8th Street was covered and blocked off. My heart's going like a fucking drum. I put my hand right on the car. See my, my hand touched that car. They were fucking all over me. Unusual Suspects is produced and presented by me, Owen Brennan. Sound production is by Lachlan Hart. Siobhan Walsh was production assistant. Unusual Suspects is a Go Loud original.